We believe in marriage. We love the idea of marriage. We love the idea of being faithful to one another for the rest of our lives. It's been very, very good to us. It's been a great uh, and wonderful environment for, for both of us humanly and for our children. And we'd love that for all our children and for uh, whether they're gay or whether they are uh, heterosexual. The idea that they could love someone for life and have that relationship at the highest level in Irish society recognised. People have the right to vote and they have a right to do that in freedom and in respect for their views. Mary McAleese has departed from the precedent set by Mary Robinson and by President Hillary by intervening directly in matters of Irish policy. I presume she has a very good reason for doing so. Mick Clifford, Special Correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Good afternoon to you. Hey, Jonathan. Uh, Mary McAleese's intervention on the right hook uh, coming out in favour of same-sex marriage. Breed O'Brien there, obviously, was opposed to it uh, on Newstalk Breakfast. In many ways, the campaign came to life this week, but have we heard anything new? No, and I don't know if we will hear anything new, Jonathan. I think it's a question of, 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 like all these things, both sides attempting to win hearts and minds. I mean... Um, what I thought was interesting was Breed O'Brien suggested that Mary McAleese broke with a precedent in getting involved in politics. But this, I think, if anything, would come under that label of a matter of conscience, uh, like any of these areas. And therefore, she was just expressing a personal opinion. And I think it's very interesting coming from her because she is somebody who is very much associated with the Catholic Church. And quite possibly there for an indication that the line being um, followed by the hierarchy and, and those who would go along with that is not necessarily the line that a lot of committed Catholics would go along with themselves. So I, I think her intervention from that point was very interesting. Um, Twitter intervened rather strangely. It's Irish boss Stephen McIntyre saying a yes vote would make Ireland more attractive for foreign workers and investors. Now, the no side got quite agitated that as, that a company had gotten involved. Kind of an area where we wouldn't have had much experience in the past whereby a corporate entity would have expressed an opinion on something the electorate was going for. But were they right to intervene? Do they have any point in intervening? Do they have any locus standi to borrow a legal phrase to get involved? Yes, sir, you're big up in the Latin. I'm very po- I learned that was the three years in law and that's the one thing I remember. Go on. Uh, no, I have to say I'm a bit uneasy about it myself. Um, I've no problem with their opinion on it, but expressing it in that manner, uh, what do we do then when... In, in my opinion, corporate entities like Twitter have way too much power, particularly versus, versus nation states around the world and their ability to wield power. So anything they say outside their strict area of business makes me uneasy, I have to say. For example, if Twitter were to offer opinions on something like uh, the criminal justice system and how we should run that here, how would people react with one way or the other? So, not so, their opinion itself, I've no issue with that whatsoever, but the fact that they express it and that it's given some uh, credence, I would definitely uh, be wary of that without a doubt, you know, because um, it's just, it's, it's got nothing to do with them. We know what the polls are, Mick. Uh, it's very much in favour, according to all the opinion polls that have been published so far. Perhaps the yes side losing a little bit of ground. But like all issues of conscience, that you might, as you might describe this, um, it's probably different in other, to other ones, but we have the silent majority here who are not necessarily going to shout on one side or the other, but who have an opinion and who will get involved. How significant is that middle ground going to be over the course of, of the next month and a half until we actually go and vote on this? And... How much are they going to be swayed by the arguments being put forward, which, let's face it, 
there's a lot of high moral ground being claimed on the extremes of this debate that mightn't necessarily appeal to that middle ground on either side. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that, Jonathan. Fear is the key with an awful lot of these things always. I think, you know, it is very interesting. Yes, it does look at the moment like the yes side is very much in the driving seat. But you go back to something like the children's referendum. Who is against giving more rights to children? Uh, You know, if you were to look at it in that basic way, yet, ultimately, in that referendum, I think, oh, it was very, very close, far closer than anybody would have predicted. But Mary Lou Lou MacDonald made that point this week, that this shouldn't be seen as an opportunity to kick the government over something. But surely people don't go into the voting booth looking at an issue like this and go, do you know what now, Fine Gael will get the hump if I vote, no. No, no, there may be something in the fact that because a lot of people are disaffected, particularly with mainstream politics, anything that people in mainstream politics are seen to be selling, there's automatic suspicion about it. I don't know how, how valid that is, but it certainly could be something. The other side of the coin, though, is I think it's interesting that a number of people, a number of politicians, particularly in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, have privately said they're not going to go out campaigning on the basis that they don't want to run into anybody who might take offence to them campaigning along that lines, particularly in an election year. So whether that's an indication of what you call the silent majority, I don't know. But I would be very surprised one way or the other if this is not going to be end up a very close run thing, irrespective of how, how the polls stand at the moment. Okay, we heard earlier in the programme, Senior Counsel Michael O'Higgins, very eminent Senior Counsel, uh, about the Supreme Court's overturning of the exclusionary rule. Now, in the most simple terms, that means that evidence that was obtained illegally against a constitutional right can now be, in certain circumstances, admissible in a court case. His point was that standards in the Garda Síochána will slip as a result of that. Is that a real possibility? Because, you know, not every guard is going to be 100% above the law every single time. And, you know, this may be an opportunity for some who might want to cut corners to do exactly that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think Michael O'Higgins definitely has a point, and particularly I think uh, Adrian Hardiman in his dissenting ruling, he was one of three who dissented with the majority for verdict. He, um, Judge Hardiman has a tendency to write uh, very cogent yet colourful judgments that are, are are easily to digest for us lay people. And I have to say, he hit on a number of points there, uh, similar to what Michael O'Higgins said. I heard you mention earlier, Jonathan. You, you, you know, you you made reference to that very small cohort within the force who might be minded not to go along with the law. I think the issue is much broader than that. It's not so much uh, officers who would be minded, who've no problem about breaking the law, but that things can slip in terms of standards and that the idea of what what constitutes staying within the law, once you put a sort of an elastic form on that, I think that's where it could become an issue. Now, I also understand, look, what people call technicalities, and there have been very high-profile cases in recent years. I remember one in particular to do with uh, a, a, a somebody who's charged with possession of child pornography, and that the warrant... Uh, which was used to get the hands on the computer was actually a week out of date and that collapsed the trial. Now, it is entirely understandable how people would react to that and suggest that justice had not been served and the public interest had not been served and victims have not been served. But I think Judge Hardiman's point about giving a, um, a freedom to the law enforcement agencies that would not be available to the average citizen is definitely something worrying. Only time will tell as we go along, but we do know that there have been instances of miscarriage of justices in this country and, 
you know, this widens the door through which mm. those mistakes can happen. And finally, and briefly though, there is going to be a buffer between that. Yes, the evidence may be admissible, but you have a judge who's there to help guide the jury and you have a jury deciding on that evidence at the end of the day. So it's not as if the entire onus is on the guards. There are still other locks in place in, this, in the system and that should prevent that kind of thing from happening or am I too innocent in my understanding no, of the law? No, I think you have a point, but another dissenting judge is Lee McKechnie made the point about, you know, so you get into a situation in a trial where you have effectively, I, I would imagine, a trial within a trial to determine whether uh, the breach of someone's constitutional right was inadvertent or not. Now, that can really get things bogged down and particularly if you have a jury there getting into that kind of detail and ultimately mm. people having to decide whether something was inadvertent or not. So it's, you know, as, as, as Mao Zedong said about the French Revolution, it's way too early to see yet whether it's <laughs> going to be a success or not or, or, or whether, whether it, it, it'll be something negative in criminal justice. But we'll just have to wait and see how things pan out. OK, Mick Clifford, I'm going down to Tralee this evening, the only Cork man in a room full of Kerry people. Will I survive it, do you think? I'd say I'd want to be well-armed there, John. <laughs> Mick Clifford, thank you very much for that. It's for the Primrose Ball uh, for the IMNDA. I should be safe enough. They should uh, welcome the one Cork man coming in. Uh, let's go over to Boston. Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe. Good afternoon to you. Jonathan, describing that situation, our police just would have shot everybody. Yeah, and, and that's the case, and it's it's happened a lot in the state. There was a story, uh, and I wanted to talk to you. It was at the start of the week about a seventy-three-year-old guy who shot a suspect by mistake when he should have used a taser. And and everybody was talking about the gun crime element, which was very significant because he shouldn't have shot him. What was a seventy-two-year-old guy doing in the police force? That's a very good question, and you get to parts of like the South and parts of the the, the West down around Arizona, New Mexico. It's very common for, like, retirees to be hired as special police officers because they're hired for short money and short experience in this case. The thing that amazed many Americans this week is the idea that the taser and the, and the, and the actual firearm, the, 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 the pistol, are on the same side of the holster. It's like everybody said, well, you know, like ordinary people saying, why aren't they on opposite sides? <laughs> because apparently this has happened more than once. And there's a number of, uh, of occasions in which police officers have shot people thinking it was a taser, at least that's their story, and they get away with it, for lack of a better term, because, I mean, there's no jerk that's going to say, well, geez, if I had those both on my side, I might have pulled the wrong one, too. In all the cases they've got away with it, there's been video or other witness uh, testimony saying they yelled, taser, 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 and then shot them. Yeah, which is a kind of a different outcome than what they might have been announcing. And let's talk about uh, Aaron Hernandez. He's a former New England Patriot star convicted of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life. Here's the moment uh, the verdict was handed down. Charging the defendant, Aaron Hernandez, with murder. What say you, Madam Foreperson? Is the defendant not guilty, guilty of murder in the first degree, or guilty of murder in the second degree? Guilty of murder in the first degree. Now, this was a guy, he was on a $40 million contract. He had a, he had a career sure. plotted out ahead of him. What happened that he ended up killing someone? Well, if, if, if you look at his life, he was kind of a bum all the way around. And then, like a lot of American football stars, he just gets pushed along. He was a bad kid in high school, did a lot of bad things. Everybody made an excuse because he was the high school football star. He went to college. He did some crazy stuff in college. There's a suspicion he was involved in a murder when he was in college playing football. And again, everybody just pushed him along. 
it's just a classic case. I, you know, it, it's hard to compare to, say, a European context because I don't think it would quite happen. Um, but in American football, you know, Aaron Hernandez now the epitome of the thug life. But you could go through every NFL team, Jonathan, and find somebody who could be an Aaron Hernandez. Nobody wants to talk about that. Uh, it, it's it, it's just it's the culture. It's the sort of. But it, I, I think it begins with sort of if you look at all these kids. I went to high school with a kid who was an absolute bad kid. And he got out of trouble all the time because he was a great football player. And I, I think it says as much about our culture as it says about Aaron Hernandez being just a bad person. He's a bad person who was given breaks his entire life. Hmm. I, I want to talk about this helicopter that landed on the lawn of the <laughs> Capitol building. It was being flown by a postman. What's a postman yeah. doing with the gyrocopter? And why in God's name did he land where he landed? The postman apparently is quite an activist, and he believes deeply in the need for campaign finance reform. And I agree with him 100%, and I think most Americans do too, that you know, the, there's too much money in American politics. So his decision, but here's the crazy part. He sent out notices. He, he alerted the FBI. He told the Secret Service he was going to do this. And he told the Tampa Tribune in his hometown in, in Florida. And their reporter followed him up to Washington and watched him do it. And nobody in the Secret Service, nobody in the FBI followed up on what this guy told. He told them he was going to do it, and they didn't follow. He flew 80 miles in the small helicopter and landed on the White House lawn, which I'm sure people in ISIS are sitting there. Well, that's very interesting. <laughs> so in other words, he, he, he tipped everybody off. He said, here I come, guys. I'm going I'm to land coming. on the lawn. And uh, they did nothing about it, and he landed on the lawn, and then there was a kerfuffle. Yeah, that doesn't seem that the system works very well. ISIS probably wouldn't tell well, you in advance. No, I don't think they would. Uh, on, on the bright side, nobody shot him. <laughs> well, that is a relatively bright side. And let's listen to this. This was the much-awaited announcement uh, from Hillary Clinton. I'm getting ready to do something, too. I'm running for president. Americans have fought their way back from tough economic times, but the deck is still stacked in favor of those at the top. Everyday Americans need a champion, and I want to be that champion. What a load of crap that she came out with. And she, she managed to pack it into 15 seconds at the end of a whatever minute-long video. I mean, no wonder everybody said it was a complete damn squib. It was, and I, I have to say, nobody, it, it got so little attention. There was so much going on in the country. Nobody paid attention to it, and if they did, they they paid derisive attention to it. It was not very well done. It struck me that she had 55-year-old white guys telling her, hey, there's social media out here. We have to use it, so good luck to her. Marty O'Malley's going to challenge her, um, if only to get, a, to get a place on the ticket or something, but yeah, it looks like a coronation at this point, and like all coronations, just being Irish or American, you went to coronations. Yeah, the only thing is uh, coronations can't be ruined by the fact you can be beaten by the other side. Uh, Mar Marco Rubio uh, is the latest to stray into the red camp. What do we know about him? Well, he's interesting in the sense that he's, you know, the, the, the son of immigrants uh, from Cuba. He's, the weird thing about him is that he says all the right things on immigration. I, I, he would be the Irishman's choice, to be honest. He really is very good on this because, like everything... He, he knows what it means. He knows that most of his people came here, worked their butts off, and, and, and got a piece of the American dream and all that. Boy. That does not fly well with the Republican base. They don't want to hear that. Most of the Republicans I know think he's Italian. 
Right, okay. You need to work on that certain image anyway. Kevin, we'll talk to you again next week. Uh, maybe maybe Hillary might have put out another campaign video on Twitter by then. Oh, I, hope, I can't wait. I'm waiting for the Joan Burton endorsement. It, it's got to be close. <laughs> Kevin, thank you for that. Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe.